This is an ABC podcast. Imagine a university that is a community, where students tend to a garden, where relationships between people and place, holistic learning and ecological principles are as important as the subjects and courses on offer. Consider the free university, which charges no fees, offers no degrees, has no set curriculum, and believes more in an open exchange of ideas than the formal distinction between lecturer and student. These are a couple of the alternative models of higher education presented by Richard Hill and Kristen Lyons in their book, Transforming Universities in the Midst of Global Crisis, which they've co-authored with Fern Tomset. I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, I'm talking to Richard and Kristen, who argue universities have their roots in colonisation and have become neoliberal institutions, competing with one another and too focused on generating revenue and churning out job-ready graduates. Both Richard and Kristen hope the COVID pandemic, in conjunction with the climate emergency, could provide an opportunity to radically transform universities, or at least trigger a discussion about how we can reimagine higher education. Richard Hill is author of two other books that interrogate the modern university, which he's spoken about previously on Big Ideas. He's an adjunct professor at Griffith University and Southern Cross University. Kristen Lyons is Professor of Sociology at the University of Queensland. This discussion, which occurred before the election, took place at Brisbane's Avid Reader Bookstore, in front of an audience that included academics and students. And I began by asking Richard how he thought universities had drifted away from the values they should be reflecting. Look, I feel like a bit of a veteran of complaint, you know. Um, I've been complaining about universities for God knows how long now, probably ever since I started working there, it was about 30 years ago in Australia. Look, um, they've gone, as Paul indicated right from, right from the off, they've gone through a gigantic transformation and uh, from really being public institutions. And, and let's not forget that the, the very existence of universities is decreed really by legislation. Um, and the remit set out in that legislation is that universities universities are public institutions designed to engage in teaching and in research, and that's their primary role. And what we've seen, I think, particularly since the late 1980s, is a monumental transformation, almost unrecognizable, I would say. And and, and actually being part of that system, um, I saw those changes, you know, right from being part of a collegial culture to in the latter years before I retired, when, when that was 2008, I think, to really feeling that universities had become like private companies, private firms with CEOs, and where there was a divide, an increasing divide between the managerial class, or as Rob Watts has referred to them, the managerial, and a growing number of casualized employees. And it's staggering to learn, for example, that 40,000 or so people lost their, have lost their jobs as a result of COVID. But many of the universities prior to those uh, job losses uh, and, and this includes the Sandstone Universities, about 70% of their employees were casuals or people on short-term contracts. So you had this increasing divide between this specialist managerial class and the growing disenfranchised, precarious workforce. And, and that really has led to considerable problems, which I think we'll discuss throughout the evening. 
So, so Kristen, how did you get involved in this? Richard's obviously is a veteran of uh, <laughs> talking about uh, what universities have become. You yourself are a professor at a Sandstone University. Is this a product of your frustration as an academic working in the belly of the beast or is it, uh, is it something else? So I first entered into the university world in the early 1990s when I started up an environmental science degree and had some phenomenal mentors and friends there at that time that taught me what, it, what the opportunity of having the experience in a university is in terms of the opportunity to think critically and deeply in expansive ways and to turn attention to the most pressing issues of the day. And for me in the early 1990s, that was absolutely about a range of environmental justice issues that were pertinent and continue to be pertinent and are in fact you know, they all consume us, you know, many of us these days, which I'm sure we'll turn to talk about in terms of the climate crisis and the impetus for this book. And so for me, as much as the research that I do, which is outwardly focused away from the university, I've always been interested in what goes on within the universities and ensuring that they are places of transformative potential. And so I, I want to I wanna bring in Fern Thompson, who we wrote this book here with as well, who is sitting in Portland, Oregon right now, who <laughs> set her alarm for one o'clock in the morning so she could join us and be with us right now. And, you know, it's having connections with people like Fern and Richard and others, including the dear friends in this room right now and the dear friends that I know are watching us via Zoom, who know of the potential of critical conversations as translated into practice and action. And, and that's really the impetus for this book, is, mm. is that focus on transformative potential and always being oriented towards that. And we're having this conversation at a time when universities have come through this storm of the pandemic, which has forced certain change on them. Do you think that this provides us with an opportunity, with a space, to talk about what the university had become, not just as a result of the pandemic, but generally, and to talk about reimagining its possibility. Does that partly explain the timing of this book and mm. indeed the title of the book yes. as well? Yeah. Now is a fantastic moment. It's a devastating moment, but it also it is a moment. We started writing this book in response to us thinking through the climate crisis and the responsibilities of universities and indeed any institution that makes claims on being a public good or, a, or an institution oriented towards the common good. And so we're in universities, that's, that's what we're oriented towards. So what, what responsibilities do you need to have as educational and research institutions in the face of the climate crisis and the profound injustices that bear down across the world to humans and more than humans in this context? But then as we were hatching the plan for this book, COVID-19 rolled out. And so then we started thinking about the ways in which these two crises are absolutely profoundly interconnected and driven by the same kinds of sets of forces, which are around this commitment to extractivism of bleeding the most out of the planet and bleeding the most out of each other. And that this sort of set of values and ideas just isn't commensurate with living on a, on a finite planet. And mm. so, you know, this was really the impetus for the book is, is how can we think about the, the priorities, the values, the practices that line up with the problems we, we now face. What I found interesting about the book is, so COVID is bookended by these two climate change events, the fires, the devastating wildfires, unprecedented, and the floods that we've just experienced, equally unprecedented. But what you say about 
the climate events and the uh, environmental and ecological destruction that has led to it is that this is not just something that universities are living with. This is something they are implicated in. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was particularly interesting. You say universities are not so much in crisis, but of the crisis. Maybe, Richard, you can start off and mm. talk to that. Yeah, well, look, if we want to understand uh, universities today, we, we have to go upstream. We have to look at uh, the very system of which they are a part. And the more we looked into this, the more, more we came to appreciate that you can't separate the university from this, the system of which it is a part, and that's neoliberal capitalism. And um, if we look at neoliberal capitalism, at its very essence, it, uh, it, it gives an, an enormous emphasis to the market. It believes in the diminishing government, but it's very centre is about competition based on uh, the extraction of resources. I mean, we did want to play with that idea of universities not just in crisis, mm. because there's a lot of talk about that, and we can see very clearly, and Paul, in the introduction, you spoke about, you know, the profound challenges that we see and we have seen facing the higher ed sector in the context of COVID, the phenomenal hemorrhaging of particularly casual staff across the sector, the, the ways in which international students have carried a disproportionate burden in terms of the financial and other, you know, challenges that, that they've faced. So absolutely we know that universities are in crisis, but as Richard, what you're speaking to there is the ways in which universities are a product, particularly if we take the Australian context where we're sitting, where we are sitting now, you know, these are institutions that are products of our violent settler colonial histories. And, and so part of the work that we're interested to do is grappling with institutions such as universities extend a set of interests and power relations that serve settler colonial society and in so doing serve particular, we would argue, you know, um, patriarchal interests, um, you know, continue to raise significant challenges about you know, how do we grapple with the, you know, that, that universities sit on, on unceded territory, um, you know, that, that phenomenal challenge that, that universities extract wealth from the, the real estate portfolios that they have, particularly in highly valuable urban areas. And so that's what we're getting to in terms of the in and of crisis. And so what we're really excited about in this book is looking at those examples that say, we want to face that. And for us three, as non-Indigenous settler colonial descendants grappling with our roles and responsibilities in this place. And so the writing of the book was a way of trying to make some sense of that for us yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interestingly, that critique of universities being a, a product of the neoliberal system, equally you could say that those academics that work at the universities, many of them, exist to challenge that very structure, political science lecturers, economists who are critiquing neoliberal economics. So you've got this kind of dichotomy between the university representing the problem, but on the other hand, those who work there and are teaching students, mm -hmm. trying in a sense to, to critique that. Is what you're saying that the university needs to reflect more of the values of those who are teaching the courses that are critiquing these, these aspects? Mm. 
Yeah, one of the one of the great uh, problems uh, in, in talking about this stuff is that you know you can fall into this, this terrible trap and actually you know homogenise universities to say there's nothing really going going on in there. But the very opposite is true. There are some wonderful academics, uh, brilliant academics, some excellent work being done. One of the things that we do know is that the the transformations we're seeing to the university are altering every aspect uh, therein, including teaching and uh, and research and so forth. If you look, for example, at um, the university councils and these. Uh, some of the most important bodies in universities, increasingly over the last 20 years, those councils had less academics, they've had more people from business backgrounds. Various, there's, there's quite a strong research to indicate, for example, that the majority of people on those councils now come from business councils, of, of which comprise of people who have no knowledge of universities whatsoever. Uh, and this has real implications. The other thing that's really telling about universities is that if you look at senior management positions, I'm talking about the upper echelons of management, they still are rather culturally homogenous group. You know, uh, we haven't got the cultural diversity reflected in that management structure. Therefore, some of the decisions being made are made through a particular cultural lens, which has real implications for teaching and research. Mm. Mm. Yes. Oh, sorry. sorry, can I just add as well? Absolutely. Universities are filled with fabulously radical, interesting people doing amazing work. That, and, and what we're keen in this book to explore is the ways in which we can shine a light on that and continue to open up the spaces for more of that to happen and to defend those spaces with as much fierceness as we can. Mm. And there's good people in this room who are doing just this, absolutely. Mm. Um, and that's the intention of this book is, is to contribute to the conversation, which is about how do we widen these spaces so that we can, you know, think more, more about how in the various positions that we occupy in universities, for those of us that do sit within universities, how can we widen the spaces for more critical conversations about ecological citizenship, for example, mm. or indigenous intellectual sovereignty and what that might look like. So we're, in, we're, we're really interested in widening that space and acknowledging it is there. I mean, I think we all recognise how managerialism has taken over how many public institutions have been run. And I think many of us understand, too, the impact of university fees and increasing fees and how that changes expectations and the types of students that come into universities and what they offer and how they become a lot more focused towards vocational outcomes and so on. But, but are you also saying that what neoliberalism is doing is stifling the type of academic freedom that makes the critical conversations that you're talking about harder to have? Are there more pressures on academics to offer the types of courses and have the types of discussions that you think are important? I, th I think so. I think so. And I think one of the consequences has been that as soon as you develop a system that's based on the market, that means you have competition. You have universities in a cutthroat comp competitive market. You have diminishing federal government fu funding over the last 30 to 40 years. So how have universities responded to that? Well, in this competitive market, they've gone out, sought students, particularly international students, to cross-subsidise research. So. This is one of the major problems that's occurring, and I, and I think that one of the results of that has been that universities have introduced management structures in order to ensure compliance in the workforce. So that's partly to ensure that people are supportive of the brand, but it's also to ensure that there aren't too many questioning people in the system. And uh, you know, compliance is a very strong um, impulse, particularly when you want to promote a brand. And is compliance uh, a kind of 
reaction to the fact that more academics these days are on insecure employment contracts, the sessionals, contracted, casuals, and uh, they perhaps don't want to rock the boat too much because they're worried about what that might mean for their individual futures? I think that academic staff are inundated. <laughs> I'm just talking personally now. You know, pe people are absolutely inundated with workloads. But to this issue of compliance, I mean, where do the directives come from about yeah. what we teach? And, you know, we know the federal government's response through COVID has, has sent this, you know, disgraceful market signal to determine what it is that we should be teaching in terms of the prices that we set for degrees. I mean, as I have said off the cuff to many people, I, I'm not sure if I really want to leave it up to this current federal government to make decisions about what the jobs of the future are. I, I mean, I think we're all speculating about what the jobs of the future are, but I know there's people in this room that actually do research on the future of work. I'd, I'd rather leave it up to them to make those decisions, you know. So we've got these kind of distorted so-called market signals that then shape what we're able to teach. So then that bears down on the teaching front line in terms of what we can actually teach regarding curriculum. But, you know, for us, what really animates us in this book, and I want to acknowledge the incredible work that Fern Thompson has done with free universities and free schools in terms of flipping this model on its head that somehow there's these external experts that get to say this is what people need to learn for to match up with job-ready skills, but actually democratising decision-making in terms of this is what we teach. So the free school model and the free university model that, that Fern has written about in one of the chapters of the book you know, talks about that devolved governance model where we have collective conversations with the communities we live and work in about, well, what do we need to know this time, at this time, at this mm. moment in history, given what's happening? What skills do we need? And, you know, the conversations that Richard, Fern and I would frequently have in this writing of this book is, you know, that these give us indicators of how governance work, about what the priorities of the, of the day are. But, you know, we don't think that we won't ever need mechanics and lawyers and those, you know, range of set of skills, but, but we can also be far more responsive to what actually communities ourselves say about what our skill set is, rather than being driven by expert outsiders who are really shaped by a set of market imperatives that don't match up with the live reality of most people on the planet. Let's talk about the free university model, because I'm not sure that that many people know about it. So you've got your big formal universities that, as you say, train your engineers and your doctors and your lawyers and, and so on, and that we've really been referring to when we talk about this neoliberal uh, model of universities. But on the other hand, you've got these very informal models of universities, free universities, sometimes ephemeral, sometimes temporary, bring to good the, the distinction between the, the teacher and the student is a lot more blurred and so on. And I know, Richard, that you've been responsible in founding a couple of these hmm. universities, uh, one in, in Bellingen. Hmm. Tell the listener, tell the audience what, what the free university is. What's the, what, what are they trying to achieve? Well, part, part of its impulse is to bring people together in open forums. And, um, you know, we don't have enrolments, you don't have lecturing staff, you don't have these formal positions. You have, you have a, what is often referred to as communities of learners, people who want to be there. And what we found really fascinating is that uh, the, the number of people who are really eager to learn, you know, who want to come along. And um, I remember a few years back, uh, Professor Rob Watts at RMIT decided that he would actually introduce something outside the formal curriculum. And he started putting on these workshops for uh, campus workers. And all these workers arrived. And, uh, and he was talking about some of the, you know, the, mo the, the most famous philosophers 
And um, they all came along and uh, greatly enjoyed the session, so much so that then academics started joining and other people too. So look, people will, will, will respond to this. Uh, and I think it connects really to a wider debate about what universities are for and what learning is for. Mm. And uh, my, my, my dear friend Stuart Rees, who actually often comes up with this remark about promiscuous learning, experimental learning, ideas that just flow from discussion and arguments. And, and I think it operates outside the constraints of often rigid curricula. Often people find when they go to university these days, particularly where you've got vo vocationalized curricula, that they seem very constrained. It's almost like an educational straitjacket. So if you offer these informal forums, then places come alive. One of, the, one of the tragedies of universities, I think, is that the student engagement with the university itself, we know that the vast majority of students actually are compelled to work for a whole variety of reasons. So the informal discussions that used to take place on campus, certainly when I went to University of Essex in the uh, 1970s, most of the learning was done outside of the formal educational arena. It was actually done by engaging with people from different cultures, different backgrounds, and that's where you did a lot of your learning. And, and there were a lot of spontaneous you know, eruptions of different forums. And, uh, and I think actually the free university movement is part of that spirit of, of free learning, of promiscuous learning. And I actually was privileged here to be part of uh, the Brisbane Free University. We used to meet in the um, the basement of the car park here of the, the Westpac Bank, mm. and it was really truly marvellous. That great spirit of learning, and and the great impetus for it is that we could actually address the issues which were contemporary, live, which were actually impacting us uh, in in the present day. Um, and we, we weren't constrained necessarily by by curricula. So there's no credential that comes at the end of studying at a free university. It's about no. having having the discussions. Mm. Do you think, Kristen, that the the mainstream <coughs> formal universities could learn something from the free university structure, or really is what the free universities do something that sits on the side of mainstream universities? Fabulous question. This is sort of at the heart of what we're really interested in this book is, you know, for us, we're really interested in what goes on at the edges of the university and beyond the university that, you know, we play with the idea of within and without. And so for us, looking at free universities is, you know, these things that exist outside the university's walls, but also seeing that the university's walls are porous. And so absolutely, they can be in relationship to what goes on in free uni. So I want to add to what you said, Richard, to say, you know, so for people who might be unfamiliar with free universities, they're free in at least two ways. They're free, obviously, in the sense that they don't cost anything. And given the phenomenal rise in student fees that we've seen in Australia and in other parts of the world, you know, this notion of not having to pay for education because it's a public good is obviously a radical idea. I think there's something that universities can think about that in terms of the cost of study. But they're free in the sense of, secondly, this idea is that they have a liberatory agenda. It's about a radical change agenda. And so the historical impetus for free universities in the 1960s in California was around, you know, providing a radical base to talk about the stuff that mattered. And so, you know, in the book, Fern talks about from, you know, workshops on Marx and Freud and Zen basketball and everything in between, like you name it, and it was being covered because it was driven by the grassroots needs at the time. And similarly, as Richard's talking about the Brisbane Free University has talked about a range of different things in relation to what has gone on at, at the time in, in Brisbane. And so I think 
there is also a really profound lesson there that universities can grapple with in terms of what does it mean to be led by communities themselves, local communities, including importantly First Nations communities that we are, you know, being in relationship in being on country in terms of how we're led by what research do we do? What does community service look like? What does curriculum look like? And, and again, coming back to early questions, this is happening. We're saying, how do we open that up and do that more? So it, it's subverting this idea of the university as the ivory tower. It's subverting this idea of expertise, in inverted commas. All of that is disruptive, and I can see how something interesting and dynamic and contemporary flows from that. But my question is, how do we know that what is being discussed and what is being taught has authority in this post-truth fake news world? Mm -hmm. How do we know that people are not having conversations that are not based in any kind of fact or, or truthfulness? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just answer some of that. I think mm. that um, a few years back, we established the Free University of Bellingen, and uh, it was <laughs> it op operated out of a cafe, and was usually kind of... The mind uh, boggles. Uh, about uh, yeah, yeah, the mind did boggle, actually. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, tremendous fun. And, um, and I, I think what characterised it for me was that a lot of people who came there were actually university students who actually lived in Bellingen, and many of them were online, and many of them were thoroughly dissatisfied with that experience, you know, not only in terms of the, the pedagogical delivery, of those courses online, but 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 this this absence of connection with other people, um, and these people were avid readers and into avid readers, and and they were fascinated in contemporary issues, and and the impetus that drove them there was to be in the company of others to explore and experiment in ideas, and it really was fascinating what what this threw up. It does come to that point too, Kristen, about what is it that you think that students want out of their education. Because we, we're constantly told that what they want is to get a decent degree, preferably with a decent GPA, so they can get a decent job and earn good money and you know live life happily ever after. What's your experience as a, you know, you teach sociology, so obviously mm -hmm. people who are enrolling in sociology, as I did when I was a university student, were not doing so necessarily mm -hmm. so that they could expand their pay packet. What, what's your take on what students want from university today and whether, and whether they are getting the type of, and whether they want the type of education that you and Richard are talking about tonight. Mm. Well, I'm looking at a couple of graduates who I've taught in recent years, and so I'm channeling them in terms of what, what do they want. Um, I mean, I, I think they want meaningful work. But as you say, it's not about the pay packet, though I think people understand and want to be paid fairly for the work that they do. But it's, it's being a part of a community of change agents. It's being part of finding a way to make a difference in the world, which all of the fabulous women sitting in this room right now that I'm looking at are exactly doing that. Um, and it's, 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 so it's building connected communities and thick relationships so that students become professional peers of each other and call on each other as friends, but as colleagues, um, to work effectively through, you know, through corporations and government and so on to make change in the world. And so we need to provide communities where that can happen, where people can form thick relationships with each other um, 
and then all that other good stuff. People become friends, they find partners, they have babies with people. Like life goes on in universities. They're really important spaces, social spaces. And just just to add to that, I, I think that students, like all of us, have often been enculturated into believing that the system of which they're a part is the only system that exists, and that you know the universities are there primarily to train you to become a, a worker in, in the neoliberal economy. You know, and and you should be vocationally ready and trained for a job. As a, by the end of your degree. And I remember my son, this is quite, uh, I remember this very clearly, he did a four-year degree at a university just down the road, which I won't mention. And he said, at the end of four years, he looked at me and, and, he, and he said, I said, so how do you feel? And he said, well, is, is that it? Is that, is that the experience? And, uh, and he left with this profound sense of emptiness. Uh, you know, he'd gone through a degree, he'd worked extraordinarily hard, but at the heart of it was this sense of a lack of connection, a lack of this community of learners, a lack of vibrancy and zest. You know, and he, he felt he was actually being trained to become a worker. It's not what he wanted, you know, and it was a law degree, so maybe you expect that. But what he wanted was much, much more than that. And, and I think that if you actually ask students, if you posit a different scenario to them, uh, I did this in, in one of my earlier books. Um, I, I met this student from Griffith University, and I sat down with her, and I asked her this very bold question. I said, how many out of 10 would you give your last three years at university? And she goes, oh, probably eight and a half. And I said, well, that's pretty high. I said, uh, why, why would you give it eight and a half? She goes, well, the, the teaching was great. I learned quite a bit. Um, you know, the facilities were excellent. You know, I had a really good uh, um, uh, um, sports hall. You know, I could do this, I could do that. And then, then I actually posited a completely different scenario where I said, what would it be like if you went to university and you didn't have to work and you could spend time and maybe even live on campus? What would it be like if you were a bit like Schumacher College in Devon, where you were on campus and you were part of a community of learners, where you helped to grow food, you helped to, 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 to clean up, you helped to be part of a culture that was a community, a living community, where you were immersed in nature and the rest of it? How would that have felt, felt? And she said, and she gave a completely different rating because what was offered then was a completely different scenario. But I think students now, um, when they think about university, their idea of it is often so narrow that they think it's simply about job training because that's what universities are offering. Just, just following on from what Richard was saying there about you know being in, in a university and being involved in tending a garden and so forth, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a chapter in your book that talks about the regenerative relational mm -hmm. university, mm -hmm. which is part of this reimagining what a university might be like. Perhaps you could just talk us a bit about some of the values that that type of university has. Mm. And there are, there are you know, a number of examples around the world of both within and without universities where there's this focus upon connection to place and connection to the diverse ecologies in which people are living and learning and that the curriculum that students mm. will learn will be connected to those places. So it's this, you know, rather than this idea of, of disconnection, it's absolutely about relationships with humans, but with the more than human. And coming back to that kind of impetus for the book, which is really around how do we think about the responsibilities and the opportunities of universities to be oriented towards the common good? Well, it surely has to start with regenerative and relational <laughs> conduct and values ground in this because how can we possibly imagine 
orienting ourselves towards the addressing the climate crisis if we don't see ourselves as actually part of and not disconnected to Richard, did you want to speak about the Schumacher College? Because I know you were immersed in that. As yeah, part of this look, board. I was thinking about it yesterday um, and uh, about eco universities in particular, but Schumacher College. And um, look, the th thing for to note first of all is it's quite staggering. And we can all get onto the the website, the um, Eco Universities Alliance, and, and they actually list all the different uh, eco universities that operate around the world. And there are literally tens of thousands of them. So w what we're suggesting in this book is not so much that we are expecting a kind of revolution in education because it's already happening. The regenerative university and colleges um, and various educational initiatives are already out there in the world. You know, and and I, I must admit, when I, I looked at this um, this morning, actually, early this morning at Schumacher College and looked at the promotional material online, it's really worth seeing because I, I was full of envy. I thought, wow, I'd, I'd love to have done a degree like that. Uh, it was wonderful where students are on campus, they, they come from different backgrounds. Uh, they, they really do participate in communities of learning. And it's a wonderful, inspiring educational experience full of spark. But, but, the but, but, but they also, mm. Richard, have a broad mm. range of courses and subjects to pick from. They can study, I don't know, literature or sociology or law or whatever, can they? They do, well? and they do. And it's all orientated around ecologies, different types of ecologies, and, uh, and, and particularly around environmental justice. Um, so the, the very thing that drives these in sort of Institutions are a commitment to social justice and environmental justice and appreciation of, of indigenous rights in particular. Uh, in Schumacher College, what they emphasize is the relationship between head, hand and heart. And they focus on those three things and they, they see education not simply as being uh, a kind of abstract process of learning, but an engagement in connection and relationality. Richard Hill discussing the ecology-centered Schumacher College in Devon, England. I'm talking to Richard and Professor Kristen Lyons about their book, Transforming Universities in the Midst of Global Crisis. You know, one of the most interesting and popular talks that I've done for a mm. while on big ideas was with <coughs> an Indigenous thinker, mm. Tyson Yunkaporta, mm -hmm. who you quote in the book, whose mm. book, Sand Talk, is one of the more remarkable mm. things I've read mm. in terms of expanding the way that I think and making me realise that much of my thinking was quite narrow. It made me wonder when I'm thinking about your book, how do we get universities to embrace more of that? And can we get universities to embrace more of, more of that thinking? Unconventional, perhaps not peer reviewed, perhaps not the kind of thing that we normally see in universities, but a major critique that you have of universities is how they've marginalised Indigenous people and taken their land. How can we help to address that? And I think there's a lot of movement in this space going on in Australia and indeed around the world and, um, and a, lo a lot of incredible work that's being led by Indigenous leadership within universities. You know, we're really cautious in this book that, you know, it, it's not for us to say, for example, what an, a decolonising agenda might look like but we really want to grapple and explore ideas around how expanding the space for more thinking and doing in this might go on. Um, but one of the examples we talk about in the book is, you know, in addition to acknowledging the incredible work that is going on, like I said, led by often, um, you know, incredible Indigenous leadership within universities. And we see, you know, we have something like 40 plus Indigenous units across Australian universities really doing important work in this space in terms of supporting 
Indigenous students, enrolments, retentions, career progression and so on, and Indigenous-led research agenda and so on. But I think Indigenous scholarship enables us to see, you know, the need for caution around not reifying metrics, for example, in this space, not getting wrapped up in the numbers, yeah. but rather looking at, well, what's the lived experience of um, those seeking to drive an Indigenous scholarship agenda, for example, in universities. And so we, like we play within this book, looking outside the university as much as within the university, we're particularly interested in some of the Indigenous-led institutions and universities around the world. We talk about the Dashida Bush University um, in the Northwest Territories in Canada and the kind of models for thinking about how, how can universities learn from this. So, for example, that Indigenous university is offering training in fire management, in hunting, but, but also a range of other um, topics on health, Indigenous health, decolonisation and so on. Now, this isn't formally recognised, as I understand, within Dushinta Bush, but but credentials to that question of credentials you raised earlier are, are provided through a university. So this training outside the university, which is phenomenally important in terms of Indigenous-led, Indigenous-owned, designed-led education, then can be recognised, is recognised through credentials at a, at a Canadian-based university. So this opens up a pathway for study and learning on terms that are appropriate um, mm. in local contexts led by Indigenous communities. And I think that's the kind of model we need to be thinking about much more within universities as well as how, how can that work? How can we soften our grasp on what curriculum we must ensure students have before they are experts in this and that yeah. and the other? Because this is part of this kind of expert, non-expert idea mm. that, that we hold very tightly, which mm. I think is to our peril. Mm. So, so would the goal be changing QUT, Queensland University, Melbourne University, whatever, making them more amenable to the types of ideas that you've spoken of? Or is your actual ideal the promotion of all of these types of alternatives that you've spoken, diversifying the university climate? What would be success for you in terms of seeing some of these modes of thinking come to fruition? I think a success for me would be the beginnings of a, of a honest public conversation about what universities are for, particularly against the backcloth of these intersecting crises that we're now facing. I was intending this evening to talk about uh, Mullumbimby, where I live. We're part of an area that's uh, right from Gympie, right south of Sydney, has experienced a calamitous climate change event. So we're, it's, climate change is not something we're looking to into the future. It's actually here and it's present. But this is intersecting with various other crises, the crisis around inequality, the crisis around democracy, the nuclear threat, which we still see. There is a really strong sense, and we make this clear in the book, that somehow universities don't seem to be able to respond to those crises in a very effective way. Um, and one of the reasons for that, I think, are the underlying values of the university. Um, it, they are profoundly based on a particular set of values and the values which we find are not conducive to really addressing the crises which we're currently facing. Can I add to that mm, too? Absolutely. To say, I think one of the things that really 
animates me. I think one of my favourite chapters in the book is the one on free universities. And it's, it's really that orientation towards the kind of, you know, as prefigurative politics, it's that world that you bring into being by doing, mm. by simply doing it, and then that world is underway. And yep. so I would say, well, that Sandstone University you refer is changing. It, it is changing all the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's the good people that are driving those kinds of transformations that are going on. Obviously, we need much more. We need it to turn and face head on the mm. climate crisis, yeah. that, you know, the, the profound rising social inequality. But it's those everyday acts that people are engaged in all the time, which is the, the small revolution. Um, I don't expect a big revolution to happen quickly. I expect it's those daily acts. It was the act of writing the book mm. together that, mm. you know, we got to the end and went, this project is a, is a project of mutual aid because we've turned up for each other mm. every mm. week, all the time, and cared for each other through, you know, some of the most challenging years that it's been to work in a university through COVID. Um, and it made all the difference. Can I just add yeah. to that? I think that when I referred to honesty earlier, I think I think to some degree there has been a streak of dishonesty about universities over the last four decades or so. You know, they have relied on this idea of excellence and high quality education. You know, and 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 they've spent enormous amounts, tens of millions of dollars, on advertising. And this is in part a reflection of the competitive marketplace itself. If you talk to academics, academics are amongst some of the most unhappy professional staff in, in Australia and, and, and across the world compared to other universities. If you have honest conversations with students, they will often tell you how disappointed they have been in their university experience, irrespective of those kind of brief surveys that are often conducted by universities. If you drill down and dig deeper, you will find that students actually want far more from their education than they're currently receiving. Mm. The other thing about universities mm, mm, mm. is that they are very hierarchical organisations. Mm, mm. At the very top, is a very well-paid person. But even, you know, tenured university professors are on a very comfortable salary. Mm. And all of the way down to the bottom of the food chain where you have your sessional lecturer really carrying a lot of the burden of the teaching that goes on and struggling to do sufficient research to then be able to climb up that hierarchy. I mean, is that something that we need to look at in universities? Is it possible to flatten that structure, make it less hierarchical. Yeah. And again, that's where looking outside universities is really important for alternate models of governance of where such levels of, of hierarchy and the phenomenal gap, pay gap, you know, you know, just doesn't need to be so that absolutely, I think we, we need to be addressing the kind of problems that we have in, in that sense. Any yeah. thoughts about what Richard said, Kristen, about that point about, and it's true because I meet and talk to a lot of academics, they do seem to be very unhappy. Any thoughts about why? So many thoughts. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell, tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, I, th I think that the volume of work has become really untenable people, but I think that managerialism, the managerial mm. that Richard talks about means that we do spend a lot of time doing work that just disappears and then we have to do it again. Like the, the, with, you know, policies and procedures current, current, constantly changing and being updated, we do something and then we're required to do it with, but with a slight amendment. So I was literally complaining to my mother this morning about how in the 90s, or no, I wasn't teaching in the 90s, in the 2000s when a student submitted an assignment, 
They just submitted it. They just put it in a box. They just submitted it. But now, because we've had the flood and we've had an interruption for a week, and I'm smiling looking at Linda, we all had to update our EC, you know, our electronic course profiles as to when our papers are due. But we have to change multiple things. Like we have this efficient system now that takes so much more work to make a small change. And I mean, I'm giving you one minutiae yeah. example here, but these efficiencies, I, I'm not sure what they're efficient for all the time. I'm not saying I want to go back for, to students submitting papers in a box, but... Although that wasn't bad, It wasn't actually. bad. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Well, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to seem too much like a technological Luddite, which I am. But, um, yeah, I think we spend a lot of time churning, doing things that we don't love. And what makes a lot of university staff happy is their research, yeah. because that's where they are change agents. That's where they are engaged in the stuff that animates them and that keeps them up, keeps us up late and has us working over weekends. We don't want to be marking papers on weekends. We want to do that between nine and five on a weekday, yeah. but we end up not having time to do those things that we actually love. And I think that's what makes us unhappy is that we don't have enough time to do the stuff that, that actually makes us good educators because we get to teach about the stuff that we're expert in. And we're expert in the sense that we understand how it plays out in the social world and we can be engaged. Mm -hmm. We're kind of really involved in it. Mm -hmm. and if there's one word that sort of, for me, characterises something that's going on in universities, that's profound disconnection at a variety of different levels, you know. Um, and certainly because the more we have this gulf, this gap between the a managerial class and the people at the bottom, you know, who do, who do the hard yards, often in very precarious circumstances, the worse it gets. And... You know, I've, I actually haven't had a full-time job in university for a number of years, but I talked to a lot of academics, and things were pretty bad when I left. But uh, what I recall from those days when I was at university is that increasingly academics forgot how to talk with each other. Mm. You know, um, often the very forums, like staff meetings, have often disappeared. Informal gatherings, the morning teas have disappeared. I know at UQ, I, I understand the, the once fabled staff club has disappeared, as they have around the country. And often you go in, and, and staff are sitting in their offices, beavering away. And, under these enormous workloads, you know, and, and the criteria over years has actually changed in terms of things for like promotion. And, uh, you know, it's become di more and more difficult over year, you know, uh, over a period of time for people to actually get these promotions. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, things have changed very profoundly in terms of the culture of universities and relationships therein. I'm in conversation with Richard Hill and Professor Kristen Lyons about their book, Transforming Universities in the midst of global crisis. Time now for some of the audience Q&A. And the first question was, if universities are training our teachers, how is the influence of their neoliberal values being felt by teachers and students? You know, part of the, the things that we're really interested in this book is exploring how diverse experiences can open up the possibilities for a different kind of life. And so if we only set, teach a set of curriculum that um, is grounded in values that align with neoliberalism, then that's the worldview that we get and that's the worldview that our teachers have. So creating opportunities for the widest possible experience, I mean, it's, 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 it's basic kind of principle for life, isn't it? The more diversity we have, the more viability the system. So how can we ensure in, in education that, of course, we need to understand neoliberalism, but we need to understand other ways of knowing, being and doing Absolutely. So I'd say that would have profound implications for then the flow on effect for teachers, for sure. The next question was, what do the speakers see 
as a sustainable post-pandemic model for Australian universities. What is a sustainable, mm. wonderful question? Um, I mean, I think to begin with, we, needing, we need to be thinking about how can universities be in alignment with the kind of uh, connecting with the places where we are? So being, being sure that the curriculum that we teach and the research that we do is oriented towards the environmental issues that matter where we are but are connected to an environmental and a social justice agenda. I mean, I know that we're having conversations at UQ. I'm looking to Greg here around, you know, how much do we fly? How much do we think we actually need to get on aeroplanes in order to connect with other scholars? And should we be prioritising those at the beginnings of their career, for example, more so than those of us who've spent two decades or more flying around the planet. But of course, it, you know, there's embodied energy in so many aspects of, of where we conduct ourselves from the food that we procure on our campuses. But I think another issue is not just how we as individuals or communities spend our energy, but also who do we take money from? You know, we have some really uncomfortable tensions about some unsustainable industries that many universities rely upon, the fossil fuel industry, the aviation industry, military, industrial complex, and so on. A sustainable university arguably does not take funding and does not further prop up those kinds of industries, or worse still, be used for those industries to greenwash by saying we're affiliated with universities and therefore we must be doing better than we really are. So I think they're some of the kinds of things we need to, to grapple with, Nicole, um, and, and that we are, that we absolutely are. I'd just like to add one thing to Nicole, which is about um, the, the way in which international students were treated during that period, which has gone down as a mm. bit of a kind of a bad story, you know, and certainly went back to the to many countries. And, um, you know, a lot of students uh, overseas have chosen to go to other countries as, as a result of how they were treated by the Australian government. But the other thing I think it's also raised is this huge over-dependence on international students. You know, we all welcome international students, but it's the question of motive. What is the motive for having these students here? And we know that over the years, the international students have been relied on increasingly to cross-subsidise research research and other activities, which is not great. And the other thing I'd like to add to this is about the question which nobody actually seems to address, which is about why do so many international students come to Australia or want to come to Australia? What is the reciprocal nature of that relationship? You know, what, what sorts of bodies of knowledge are we imparting to those students? And why are we not learning from their countries, from their traditions, from their indigenous people? And I think that needs to be addressed too. Um, I guess I, I saw that during the COVID crisis, universities getting treated quite differently to other sectors of the economy in terms of job seeker, job keeper, and the way that those workforces were protected over time. Did the Morrison government or neoliberal forces use COVID in a certain way to accelerate an agenda? And what was that agenda? And how successful have they been? Yes, Gavin. I think it's really clear when we put different pieces together that COVID provided an opportunity for uh, an attack on a particular kind of university and an opportunity to enable another kind of university. And so it was a very clear attack 
on the humanities. We could see that really clearly in terms of student fees in particular. You know, it was a tack on, because we know, as Paul's spoken about, universities have relied historically on um, a really large casual labour pool. And as you said, we saw manoeuvring to change uh, JobKeeper a couple of times to ensure that universities would not be eligible, university workers would not be eligible. So we saw this mass loss of casual staff. But, you know, this is this is the flavour of the Morrison government. It wasn't just an attack on casual workers, it was an attack on women. But at the same time, an enabling of a, not just a corporate agenda, but this language of commercialisation and enterprise. But you know, and it's not that we're not against commercialization, but it's about the commercialization of things with a very clear industry interest. So we've seen this orientation towards industry interests really driving research that, you know, the last Australian Research Council, which is the big bucket of money that researchers in Australia rely upon for research funds that gets announced, it was delayed for many, many weeks at the end of last year. And we saw the minister swoop in and intervene to, to stop a number of projects from being funded, even though they've gone through the independent peer-reviewed process. And one of those projects was a climate change related project. So, you know, we can look at the particulars of this to see, yeah, there's an attack on a particular kind of university um, and a swelling of another. That's it for today's program. It was recorded in March. Our speakers were Richard Hill, author and adjunct professor at Griffith University and Southern Cross University, and Kristen Lyons, professor of sociology at the University of Queensland. Along with Fern Tomset, they are the authors of Transforming Universities in the Midst of Global Crisis, Publication details are available on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for this Big Ideas. Coming up tomorrow, around the world in 80 trains. You can get on a plane and be on the other side of the world within 24 hours. But if you believe it's all about the journey, not the destination, then there's something to be said for travelling by train. British journalist Manisha Rajesh is author of two books on the joys of long-distance train travel, Around the World in 80 Trains and Around India in 80 Trains. Now, one of the most common things people say to me is, what on earth made you want to do this? You don't look like a typical railway fan. There's a lot to unpack there, but to do so, I need to wind back to January 2010, when I spent four months travelling the length and breadth of India by train, which became my first book around India in 80 trains. The idea for this book came about when I was working at Time magazine, um, and I happened to be reading an article about how India's domestic airlines could now reach 80 cities. Now, I'd lived in India very briefly when I was about nine, but at that time, the airlines could just about cover the main cities. So feeling rather curious, I printed out a map, I laid it on the desk in front of me, and I started to trace this airline route genuinely flawed by the extent to which it covered the country. I didn't even recognise half the names that were on there, and I briefly thought about how incredible it would be to visit them all. However, the idea of travelling around India by 80 planes and leaving an enormous carbon footprint wasn't vastly appealing. And it was at that moment that I noticed a very delicate marking all over the map that rippled right out into the furthest corners of the country, almost like embroidery. And when I looked down into the quay, I saw that this was Indian Railways. And it extended way beyond anything that the airlines could reach. And in a heartbeat, around India in 80 planes became around India in 80 trains.
Around the world in 80 trains. That's coming up tomorrow on Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.